Hey Shelfies, it's your second favorite Shelf Life host, Adam, here to tell you about my brand new podcast, Scrambled Transmissions. It's all about anthology television series such as Twilight Zone, Tales from the Crypt, Black Mirror, Are You Afraid of the Dark, and more. In my most recent episode, I had your third favorite Shelf Life host, Blake, on to talk about Tales from the Crypt and vigilanteism in comic books, TV, movies, and real life. As a special treat for Shelf Life listeners, we've included that episode so you can listen to Blake and I talk about something other than toys for once. If you like what you hear, feel free to check out my other Scrambled Transmissions episodes wherever podcasts are found. And until next time, life in plastic, it's fantastic. It's common in the winters for people to leave their cars running in driveways and parking lots while they wait indoors. The obvious purpose of this is to allow the car to warm and defrost so drivers aren't standing in the freezing weather, scraping thick sheets of ice. The obvious risk is having your car stolen, and that's exactly what happened to some friends of mine. A few days after it happened, I and my wife at the time spotted a familiar vehicle while we were driving. Recognizing a specific marking on the car, we determined it belonged to our friends, and my wife, who was driving, decided to follow the potential car thief. Our target seemed to become aware of our pursuit fairly quickly. They increased their speed, as did my wife. I got on the phone with the police, who told us to quit following the criminals, but my wife persisted. The driver in the other car ducked into parking lots, tried to hide behind buildings, and wove in and out of side roads. My wife kept up and kept chasing, without much thought to what would happen if they stopped. Finally, the driver turned down a small street which had not yet been cleared from the ice and the snow. It was on this narrow residential road that the other driver attempted their highest speed yet. My wife attempted to keep up, but eventually lost control of the car, and we slid into someone's front yard, hitting their chain-link fence. Meanwhile, several yards ahead, the car we were chasing attempted a sharp turn at the end of the street. And that's when they hit a telephone pole. Scramble Transmissions is a podcast about anthology television and a human condition. These series vary in release dates and ratings, so the episodes discussed may contain nudity, sexual content, graphic violence, and outdated cultural references. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. War II, soldiers returning from battle had lost interest in the masked crime fighters typically associated with the golden age of comics. They wanted more mature and exciting content, something with sex and violence. Far from meeting this demand, a new company called Educational Comics was formed in 1944. Founded by Max Gaines, a pioneer in the field of narrative illustration, also known as comics, Educational Comics published titles such as Picture Stories from the Bible. Their plan was to market similar historical and biblical titles to churches and schools. However, those plans changed in 1947 when Max Gaines was killed in a boating accident and the company was inherited by his son William. Under William's leadership, Educational Comics was rebranded as Entertaining Comics, or simply EC Comics for short. With this change came new titles featuring stories of suspense, horror, dark fantasy, crime, and military fiction. 
But one particular title would ring across the decades as an important part of pop culture history, Tales from the Crypt. Almost 40 years after Tales from the Crypt appeared on Spinner Racks, a series based on the comic was picked up by HBO. And just like the new show's namesake, Tales from the Crypt the series was aimed at a more mature audience. In fact, because HBO was a premium cable channel, they were not subject to the same standards and practices as network television, and they leaned heavily into that benefit. Most television series of the time didn't feature graphic violence, profanity, sexual content, or nudity. But Tales from the Crypt went there unapologetically. Today we're unscrambling the pilot episode of Tales from the Crypt titled The Man Who Was Death. The episode was written by Robert Renault and Walter Hill. It was also directed by Walter Hill and stars William Sadler. If you haven't seen the episode, here's the rundown. A prison executioner who loves what he does is fired after the state abolishes the death penalty. He goes on to satiate his appetite for punishing criminals by taking the law into his own hands. Like a horrible anti-hero from a comic book, the former electrician seeks out criminals who escaped justice and then murders them. Eventually he is caught and, unfortunately for him, the sentencing comes after the death penalty is reinstated. The episode ends where it began, with a prisoner being escorted to the electric chair. But this time, the executioner is the one sitting down. My guest for this episode is my longtime friend and frequent podcast collaborator, Blake. You can thank him for the wonderful remix of this podcast's theme song. But in addition to his wild musical and audio talent, he's also a fan of comics and superheroes, which is why I thought he'd be perfect to discuss this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I'm Adam Timish, and this is Scrambled Transmissions. So Blake, tell me, uh, first of all, just general impressions of this episode. What did you think? Oof. Um, general impression is, is oof and yikes. There's, I didn't realize that it was going to be a man talking to the camera for... Well, I didn't realize it was going to be 30 minutes. So that was kind of a, a nice surprise that it was half an <laughs> right, hour instead right. of a full hour of this guy speaking to the camera. Um, I don't know if that's something that they were going to do for Tales of the Crypt and then quickly abandon because I don't think they did that later, did they? No, I, I don't think so. Or if they did, it was much more limited. Yeah. And and here's what I was thinking when, when that was the case, when he was talking <laughs> through the whole uh, episode is I, I think the original EC comics that the Tales from the Crypt are based on had a lot of those like inner monologues, like as as yeah. the action was happening in the panels. Well, that's all comic books. I mean, right. that, that's and, how they and, operate. Exactly, and I think they were trying to recreate that same type of thing. Yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> right. What they ended up with was like a couple of scenes, and then just. <laughs> William Sadler just talking to the camera the rest of the, the time. Right. It does not make for a great television episode. It's kind of unnerving. And I guess it's supposed to be funny. Is it supposed to be funny? <laughs> <sighs> I thought they were going for jokes. I, I think so. But the hu So here's the difficult thing about judging humor from 30 years ago is that... Uh. <laughs> you can't decide whether stuff should be funny yeah. or not. The bar for humor was so different 30 or 40 years ago. Like, you didn't have to have jokes that often. And now you have to have a joke, like, every 30 seconds. Or, like, you can't call it a comedy. And, like, there were a couple scenes where he's talking to the bartender. And they're they're re saying really horrible things about, like, wanting to watch people die. Mm. 
you can't tell if that's being played for ironic humor or sincere <laughs> humor. Yeah, it's what, you know, if it's they, what they call gallows humor. But I, yeah, I don't know if they. Well, okay, so it's a 1989 audience, right? Right. And I was thinking as I was watching it, this is the height of like the crime panic, the the crime bills, the uh, the war on crime. People had it in their head, mostly because of Ronald Reagan. That uh, criminals were run amok. They were controlling the country, and um, the only the only recourse we had against them was, I guess, to to execute them all publicly, or at least that was the opinion around certain bars. And and I think obviously the episode is anti that opinion. I, I think the, yeah. the moral of it is obviously an antithesis of that but for me it, it didn't come around until like the last minute of the episode that oh the, this is an ironic thing going on here right because up till that it's it's just like jokes at the expense of like people dying by the state's hand <laughs> isn't it isn't it funny the episode i think tries to show that all the people getting killed I won't say deserve it, but it, it does try to show that they are legit criminals, or at least some of them. Yeah. They just have gotten off on very various technicalities in the court system. Yeah, so <laughs> the first person that he decides to vigilante murder, um, is there really such a thing as a, as a clerical error that lets a murderer <laughs> go free? I, I really loved how nonspecific mm-hmm. the judge was in that they were like, because of the wording, I cannot convict this person i know you murdered someone but there was a clerical error in the filing so off you go (laughs) right and then of course our our hero our vigilante is in uh the audience is in in the stands for all these all these trials just just like rubbing his hands together like my first victim I, I think it takes place in Texas. He certainly has a very obnoxious southern accent in it. Okay, the setting is kind of weird. So they want us to believe that this state um, all of a sudden outlaws um, the death penalty. Right. That makes me believe it's not Texas. Also, he says he's he's a country boy, but he, he moves to the city, I guess. Yeah. I don't know why, where I got Texas. I know at some point he said he moved from Oklahoma. Ah. I mean, it could be, it could be anywhere, but they do want to. Yeah. If it's Texas, they want us to believe that Texas outlawed the death penalty at some point, and then then revert, then change their mind shortly after. <laughs> right, right, yeah. That's that. I I also noticed that is that the it was positing that at some point Texas was like, no, we can't, we can't be killing people. Texas of all states. Well, it's like he sees it on the news that like. Death penalty, uh, it's it's being considered uh, to uh, overturn the death penalty. And then, like, smash cut the very next scene. It's like, well, there's no more death penalty here. <laughs> right. It happens immediately. And then, then the very next scene is him being laid off. He's angry about that and decides he's going to start. Just be an amateur uh, ex- executor and just do it on his own. And I I like that he continues doing it with electricity it's it's like his real his real passion i think he even says that at some point he loves and is passionate about electricity yeah there are some funny deaths here (laughs) (laughs) um one of them is a cage dancer i mean they're all heinous (laughs) to see but there are very clearly like 
automotive jumper cables attached to her cage. And it's like, is no one seeing this? Like, <laughs> when when did he go in there and rig her cage with these jump, jumper cables? And why is no one noticed? Well, I mean, that is the one where he gets caught. So maybe they were just letting it fly. You're right. I jumped, I jumped ahead. I, I forgot a really good one. Oh, what was number one? Shit. Um, oh, can I swear on this? Oh, it's the biker. The biker. Yes. Guy. Okay. The very stereotypical biker man. And he see, and this is the other thing. Like, it's like every victim gets a five minute monologue. You know, obviously yeah. we've already touched on how William Sadler is talking through this entire episode nonstop. Mm-hmm. So the the biker who gets off for murder is he peeing in a puddle or something? And yeah, yeah, live wires in a puddle. That sounds right. Yeah. So that one was fine. The funnest one was definitely the couple in a. Uh, in the hot tub, which was, I guess the story there was that they killed the man's wife. Yes. And it was his miss, him and his mistress were in the hot tub. I'm wondering how on earth did he rig this hot tub? Right. He, I guess he's very good. He's a very good electrician. He's, he is. I mean, that's what we just have to understand is the man knows his electricity. And this is right after, right after a superfluous shower scene. It's like, oh, it, it is that kind of show. It's HBO, and we're going to see boobs in this show, and we're going to see a lot of them. Just as kind of a um, content warning, I, I suppose, the very first scene in this episode of Tales from the Crypt shows a, a black man being executed, and it is kind of this long, this drawn-out, kind of torturous uh, scene. And, you know, I had seen this episode many years ago, but watching it again for this podcast, it made me, frankly, uncomfortable, and I yeah. was like, this is not going to be one that is easy to talk about. It was it was weird. I, I, I also felt a bit uncomfortable, mostly just because of, like, what the previous year, well, the previous several years in our in our society has been like, yeah. where we're painfully aware of all this, this racial stuff and injustice. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in 1989, it was it was a joke about about crime. Well, and you know, that it goes to even when he's talking to the bartender at one point, you know, I, I mentioned that they said all this awful stuff, but, you know, they even make a joke like, oh, the people on TV are saying that we execute more uh, yes. black people or they, they make some sort Minorities, of Minorities, yeah. And again, I feel like at the end of the day, the show is ridiculing people that believe that. They're yeah, not, I think so. It's hard to 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 make those distinctions, and that's that's why it's a little uncomfortable. But as is very common with tales from the crypt episodes, you'll have a character that is really really awful, trying to do something terrible <laughs> the entire time, some sort of crime or whatever, and then they get their kind of just desserts by the end of it. Right. And that that's exactly what happened in this episode. You have this guy that's obsessed with killing criminals. And eventually gets caught, and the police come in and arrest him. And then jump cut to him being dragged to the electric chair. The governor. The governor. Yeah, if they give him a few more minutes, that governor's going to call for a... a stay of execution. Uh, and he he was making fun of people in the beginning. for They, they, always, they always say the governor's going to call, and the govern, governor never calls. And, uh, of, of course, at the very end of the episode, he himself is, is screaming like a baby for the governor. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> they offered to shave my head, but I told them not to worry about it because the governor's going to call. <laughs> it's like, well, he got his comeuppance, didn't he? I yeah. love that. I, I think it's when they're arresting him. This all happens so fast. They're just like, well, yeah. you're you're in luck. They just reinstated the death penalty. And it's like, whoa. Yeah. I get whiplash. Yeah, it's like they reinstated the death penalty and then he's immediately mm-hmm. being taken to the, yeah. the electric chair. It's like, that's not how death row works. He should not be, at all. He should be like 20 years older. Right. <laughs> but it's like straight to the chair. Yeah. But, you know, they have to move those things along because they just spent 25 minutes of a 30-minute episode of him sitting in a bar talking the whole time. True, true. They do got to – they have to wrap it up painfully fast in the last few seconds there. And I don't know if you noticed this or if you watched enough Tales from the Crypt to notice, but this first episode, the Crypt Keeper has a – a slightly different voice yeah. and a very different laugh than normal. I thought I didn't like the voice. It was too whispery and weak. Yeah, it, it was like they were almost going for spooky on that, that first episode. And then after that, they were like, nah, let's just laugh and yeah. punch up the goofs. They, yeah, they needed to, to kind of up the ante on. But, and his, his puns were weak and there weren't, there were very few, very few puns. Yeah. But they were, they were learning how to do them. I, I get it. Uh, and th- this one, he starts with a bug zapper, so right. kind of a metaphor for you know electrocution, and it ends. the 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 bookend is is uh, the crypt keeper is electrocuting himself in a chair for fun, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he really he really likes causing pain and suffering to himself. He does. He's a, he's a glutton for that punishment, and he said, "I love when he says about uh, uh, William Sadler's character. I'm sure he never knew what." Hit him. <laughs> there it is. So that's about the strongest pun stuff. in that episode. So speaking of the actors, I want to talk about William Sadler just a second because yeah, William Sadler is kind of the Tales from the Crypt's golden boy. I don't know if you realize this, but no. he was in multiple episodes of Tales from the Crypt and he was in both of the Tales from the Crypt movies, or both uh, of the theatrical release, theatrically released ones. Uh-huh. So I think he's... I, I don't know this for sure. I'd have to look it up. But I think he's probably one of the m- most reoccurring actors on that show. And part of that may be because he was the first main actor in the first episode. But Is he in movies or shows that I that I would have seen? Because I know... Absolutely. The f- what, what's he in? I feel dumb. But... He plays Death in both Bill, or Bill and Ted's oh, okay. Bogus Journey. Well, then. Eh. I've seen him in other stuff, too. I just can't think of it right now. He's one of those actors that is a character actor in a lot of things. Yeah. He was the main bad guy in Die Hard 2. He just pops up every, everywhere, I'm sure. Yeah. I know that I've probably seen him in a million different things, but he is he is the main protagonist in Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight as well. But. Yeah. And then there's one episode of Tales from the Crypt where... I'm pretty sure he plays death in the in the, the intro, like the Bill he's, and Ted he's death. Like, yeah, he like uses the same like weird Eastern European accent uh, uh, that he uses in Bill and Ted, and he's like having some sort of gambling with the Crypt Keeper or whatever. But I thought that was really weird that he was just like, "Death's not copyrighted, so I guess I can just do the same portrayal here." Oh yeah, royalty free character. It kind of began and ended with uh, something that sounded like bad circus music. Yeah. 
And it's just like, where did this come from? It's like they just <laughs> grabbed some random, like, royalty-free uh, <laughs> mood music. Which is bizarre because I, I don't know if you noticed, but Danny Elfman, yeah, you know, scored the theme song. Right. But then it's like beyond that, it reminds me of like the full moon features in like Charles Band movies. Like <laughs> he always has that kind of music in, in there. I don't know. I always associate him with those really low budget horror movies. I think it was made for the show, and I think there was a credit for who did the music, and I, I forgot. It wasn't some name I recognized like Danny Elfman. But I think they had someone compose this strange circus music for the show. As far as I could tell, it just thought it sounded weird. Right. Well, it's certainly in the in the context of the actual episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if they if they want to set they don't want to set too serious a mood, maybe. They want to let us know that hey, this is satire. We're we're taking you through the funhouse mirror. Mm-hmm. So, uh, here's some goofy circus music. Maybe that was their aim. I don't know. And I and I think that's something that's lost trying to watch it now as yeah. well. Is you know going back to like I said, they were very very detailed in trying to make it a live action representation of those EC comics, and I think that yeah. really comes out in other Tales from the Crypt episodes as well. And I feel like the audience at that time probably had some familiarity with it, whereas now modern audiences might not have that same type of. Uh, Exposure to, like, those old pulp comics. Yeah. I'm glad this wasn't made in, like, the mid-2000s because they would have done it, like, freeze frame, and then the person turns into a drawing, and then they zoom <laughs> out, and it's a comic book panel, and then they pan over to another panel, and then that that's the next scene. Blake. <laughs> Does that happen at some point? No, but the new TV series Creep Show on Shudder. Oh, that's where I'm getting that from. Yeah. Yeah. They made that into an anthology series as well. And it does exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, constantly. and th- they're not, they're not the first media to do that. I mean, like, right. look at like Ang Lee's Hulk and shit. Like, like <laughs> it, it's been happening for a while. It, it never right. really translates correctly. Like, not at all. If just, just make, if, make a TV show or make a movie. Don't make something that's pretending to look like a comic book or I, I'd just yeah. go read a comic book if I wanted a comic book. If you had never seen Tales from the Crypt before, imagine you're, I don't know, middle school or teenager, and you happen to turn this on one night. Would you watch this show again? I was I was thinking about this same question, and it's like, if this were just a pilot presented to me, I don't know that I would buy the show. You know what I mean? I don't know that yeah. I would order more episodes. Because I know that Tales from the Crypt got better, but if this was all that existed, I'd be like a little bit like, yikes, you know? Yeah. It's like watching the first episode of Star Trek or something. It's just like, what what are we doing? What is this? Like, I'm sure people were very confused when they first saw it on TV. Vigilantes. We love them. For decades, radio plays, comic books, movies, and television shows have made a lucrative business of showing average and superpowered people punishing crime outside of normal law enforcement procedures. Most children, and even adults, have likely fantasized at some point or another about stopping a bank robbery, single-handedly taking out a group of henchmen, or cold-cocking a Nazi. 
In some circumstances, we may even justify why some of that behavior could be acceptable. But what happens when different parts of the country disagree about what crime should be punished and how? I mentioned my guest Blake is a fan of superheroes, but in his mind there's one that stands high above the rest. Batman. Of course, Batman is one of the most well-known vigilantes in fiction. But unlike other heroes, such as Superman or Wonder Woman, he's often known to employ more brutal, violent means to stop criminals and get information, which has put him into a more critical spotlight in recent years. On the other hand, he never goes as far as some violent comic characters like Deadpool or The Punisher, both whose murderous vengeance is frequently celebrated as fun or exciting. As a fan of some of these characters, I wanted to get Blake's opinion on vigilantism, not only in comics, but also how it manifests in the real world. There's the Punisher way to do things, which I think is really shitty. <laughs> and uh, it's why the uh, why I didn't enjoy the, the, the Punisher TV show as much as I did uh, many of the others. It's almost... Uh, I found it almost to be like pornographic... It was trying to say some things that that were, uh, you know, it was trying to do the right things at times, but also it was just like, check out this guy, totally do a bunch of cool murders, and uh, there's lots of uh, blood and gore to boot, and uh, we hope our audience uh, gets off to this. <laughs> there, yeah. There's a lot of that going on, and uh, so I, I prefer... Um, I prefer, you know, your Batmans and your Daredevils, the ones that don't kill. So, outside of the realm of comic books, yeah, do you think there's ever a moral justification for <laughs> taking the law into your own hands? <sighs> I'm trying to think of an... I feel like there's... Well, there's been plenty of examples of that in our society lately. Right. Both Both ones, I think, that we would agree with and ones that we would probably not agree yeah. with. And I think in general, I, I don't agree with it. I know I don't think vigilantism, <laughs> vigilantism in real life. I don't think that's a good thing. I don't think we should all go, go be Batmans. The billionaires in our actual world are not like Bruce Wayne. They would not right. make a good Batman. <laughs> They're, <laughs> they, they don't have the personality for it. They don't have the self-sacrifice. And it just, on a logical level, it wouldn't really work. But uh, on an ethical level, I, I think it's it's usually wrong. I, I, would, I do understand being so, so disappointed and fed up with a completely broken system that you feel you have no choice but to take certain situations into your own hands. And I'm trying to think of a... a an example of that that isn't horrible, <laughs> that isn't like a white supremacist or, or something. I also could not think of good examples taking place. It, you know, and honestly, I can't think of too many examples where where that had occurred, j morally justifiable or, or I not. I thought of I seemed... thought of something, and this okay. may this may be the only one. And I'm trying to now. I'm trying to. Th this happened here in Missouri. There was a, a, a short Netflix miniseries about this this true crime thing. It took place in this tiny town in northern Missouri where there was this guy who was like the town bully and all he did was cause misery in other people's lives I'm pretty sure he killed someone maybe multiple people um, and he he intimidated everyone so much even the law enforcement that that no one would come after him he got off the hook for being a murderer one day a a mob of of 
ordinary citizens ganged up on him, blew his head off. <laughs> and oh, God. Uh, you never saw this or heard about this story? I don't think so. These people from this town walked away, and to this day, to their credit, no one has snitched on anyone. Wow. <laughs> They're just tight-lipped, and no one has ever been arrested for, for that guy's killing. Huh. Uh, they, they don't even have a suspect, as, as far as I know. The, the bully's name was Ken Rex McElroy. It, it took place in Skidmore, Missouri in 1981. It does sound vaguely familiar, but I don't know that I've really done a deep dive into it. So are you familiar with Phoenix Jones? Have you ever heard that name? I don't think so. I was looking up to see if there was any sort of, you know, high profile modern uh, examples of vigilantism in the in the country. And one of them that came up was this superhero. This wasn't his real name. It was a vigilante named Phoenix Jones in Seattle. And he actually, like, had a, a full superhero costume <laughs> that was, like, made with bulletproof material. And he would just kind of... I don't know that he ever got into any sort of epic battles, but he was, like, patrolling areas and I think did stop some crime from happening. <laughs> and eventually that led to enough popularity that there were actually other people suiting up and joining his kind of like Seattle Justice League. But yeah, I guess in 2011, he was finally arrested and forced to reveal his true identity. That's <laughs> like a comic book. That That's his punishment. <laughs> right, right. Um, I'm, I'm looking him up now, by the way, and his costume is pretty dope. It's black yeah. and gold, and he's got like this cowl that covers his head, but now half of the pictures are of, are of him unmasked, <laughs> which kind of right. de- defeats the purpose of, of this cool this cool costume but yeah it's kind of I, I mean i'd be scared if i saw that coming at me at night but you know i love that comic books and superheroes have permeated our, our culture to such a degree that people think like in order for me to make a difference in my community i need to have a secret crime fighting identity you know like it's not just i'm gonna start a neighborhood watch it's like i'm gonna start a neighborhood watch yeah. With a, a bulletproof vest and a, a cowl on, you know. Well, I mean, it's it's just based in in wish fulfillment fantasies because we all grew up with this with this media. Uh, it, it's like Watchmen, like uh, the 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 book Watchmen, where uh, yeah, superheroes were a self fulfilling prophecy where where people grew up reading about them in comics and then started their own vigilante group based on that idea. Yeah, I, it's like w- would we. Would we do this kind of thing if uh, superhero comics never existed? I don't. I don't think we'd be dressing up in these spandex suits at night. <laughs> I don't think there would be a Phoenix Jones without comic inspiration. No, it'd be like uh, the Bald Knobbers. I think <laughs> the Bald Knobbers were masked vigilantes pre yeah. uh, pre comic book hero. Yeah, so. was this in like the eighteen hundreds? When did they become a thing? Yeah. I yeah, they were pre comic book. When was the first instance of a, a masked vigilante in the media? I mean, it probably happened in some of the first, like even silent films, like just some like d- dude on a horse wearing a bandana. Well, Lone Ranger would yeah. have been an early example, and right. that was what a radio play is that was that his original incarnation? Probably, but Bald Knobbers, I guess, predate even that. <laughs> yeah. 
but like I said, I mean they they're so dangerously close to the KKK though that it's it's hard to say. Yeah, I how effective of a vigilante force they were. I don't know their whole history. I feel like growing up in the Ozarks uh, and going to Silver Dollar City all the time as a kid, I feel right. like. I should know more about the bald knobbers history, but I I don't know their whole <laughs> their whole thing. I did read quite a bit about them at, at one point because I I thought it was such a bizarre idea, and like I said, I I think obviously that was motivated by me going on rides at Silver Dollar City. Yeah, <laughs> all these masked people, but they were they're the the antagonists on that ride. They're not yeah the, for sure. They're the ones setting fire. Exactly, they started the dang fire. Speak of the KKK, I mean they're. The original KKK were certainly a form of masked vigilante. I mean, they they carried out mob justice and 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 war war hoods. Yep. So they they started immediately after the Civil War. I think, from my understanding, did the bald knobbers predate even that? I, I believe so. Wikipedia says bald knobbers operated between 1883 to 1889. So maybe they oh, were. Oh, wow, that's way later than I thought. Maybe they were a little bit of a knockoff group of the KKK, maybe. So let me give you another example. This is from Wikipedia. On October 9th, 2013, Federal Bureau of Investigation apprehended members of the New York Divorce Coercion Gang. <laughs> A rabbinical group that administered extrajudicial beatings and torture to Jewish husbands. Oh my god. What? I read a little bit more about this. And apparently for, like, really orthodox Jews, uh-huh. they will grant a divorce to a woman in the case of, I assume, adultery or abuse or something like that. But the husband has to sign off on it. Uh, which, of course, is in patriarchal... Of course weird loophole thing (laughs) right so this this group of jewish men got together and for husbands that would not grant their wives a divorce Mm. they would all gang up and go beat the shit out of him until he agreed to interesting so going back to the question of moral justification what are your thoughts on let me read it again the (laughs) new york divorce coercion gang first of all that's a hilarious okay that's a hilarious name. What does it spell? Uh, N Y D C G. G. That's nothing. <laughs> they they could have done a much better acronym. So, on the one hand, I totally understand why they're doing what they do because maybe these guys do have a beating coming if if they're um, ab- abusing their wives, but they wouldn't have a need for this if if they kind of abided by uh, the law of the land. <laughs> right. And I I I hate to. I don't mean to say like they they can't practice their religion. It's 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 strange. We don't want to get into criticizing faith, but <laughs> it's 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 a strange strange deal. Yeah, it's it's like their own internal internalized police force. I guess a lot of many religions um, want to do that sort of thing, like take care of it in house. Mm-hmm. Um, Jewish people certainly aren't the only ones guilty of that, uh, where they want to keep keep the crimes within their religious community, don't let it out, and take care of it within the community. And the uh, infidel police don't need to get involved with our crimes. We'll take care of it. Yeah. Strange strange stuff, though. I found that story completely fascinating because, it, like I said, it's in a religious context. And these guys were, in a way, 
pro-divorce, obviously within <laughs> very certain context, and beating, beating the shit out of people. They should just get rid of their patriarchal rules, <laughs> and then they, <laughs> right. then they won't have a need for that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, yeah, I understand why they're doing it, but those rules are bad. So, you know, fix your, fix your religion, folks. <laughs> and I feel like when you really start getting into when is it justified to take somebody's life, then you start getting into those questions about, like, stand your ground laws and things like that, which become so problematic and muddied. You know, I, I think most reasonable people might say, yeah, if your kids, if you or your kid's life are in danger, you're going to do whatever you can to protect them. Yeah. At the same time, using that as an excuse to say it's always okay to unload a clip <laughs> on somebody if you feel threatened is, you know, those are two very, very different thoughts. Yeah. I, I think it, they, these mostly exist in uh, hypotheticals and in fantasies. I mean, can you think of a real life example of, of, of this much talked about home invasion scenario where no some uh superhero man saves his family with the, the gun and keeps under his pillow i mean these things are are hardly ever happen yeah. but they're they're talked about an awful lot oh all the time if you listen to any sort of conservative talk radio or any sort of pro second amendment you know conversation they will always make it sound like at any moment yeah Someone is going to break into your house while you're sleeping. They will try to assault your wife and they will try to <laughs> kidnap your kids or, you know, something like that. And it's always just these insane scenarios yeah. that are statistically so, so unlikely to ever happen. All right. But they need those, you know, they need those stories to be able to yeah. sell guns, I guess. But And I think... I'm I'm kind of inventing this theory as as I talk out my ass here. Right, I'm doing the same thing. Don't worry. But uh, I, people have been fed that that story so long about the home invader and and protecting your family. They've been fed it for so long without it coming to fruition. Maybe that could be the reason now we're seeing people like George Zimmerman's and um, the the people the men who killed Ahmad Arbery in Atlanta. Uh, last year um, in these cases the men tracked down their victim like they didn't yeah. wait for someone to come to their house they were like all right i was i was promised this fantasy of getting to to kill someone <laughs> who invaded my home but since that's not happening and i've been promised this for decades i'm gonna i guess i'm gonna have to make it happen so i'm gonna go track these people down um the, yeah. these bad guys and kind of like our, our our hero in <laughs> the tales from the crypt episode yeah, uh, they're they're taking it upon themselves to uh, mete out this this justice. They're they've been uh, guaranteed by by their gun magazines for so long. I don't know. There used to be a gun show. I guess there still is now, but there was a prior host who has since passed away, who used to have a a local gun show on the conservative talk radio station here in town. I was listening to his show, and he had a guy call in. The guy gave a completely ridiculous hypothetical scenario that went like this. He said, if I've got my bicycle and a person grabs my bicycle and tries to steal it from me, am I legally allowed to shoot that person? <laughs> the host was like, well, 
is your life threatened in any way? <laughs> and the guy said, okay, let's say the guy's got a knife. <laughs> okay, we're changing it up now. And the host, the host being very, trying to be very careful in how he spoke, uh, said, if he's got a weapon and if, li- and if your life is in immediate danger, then yes, you can, you can shoot that person. But just the idea that people are out there trying to craft scenarios right. that would allow them to take another human life is right, and is so so bizarre to me. And when they're not, uh, when they're told they're not allowed to, they're going to move the goalposts, uh, <laughs> right? And that that's where we get the situation of uh, well, he he didn't have a gun, but he was going to take my gun. See, I was going to shoot him, but he he was going to take my gun for me and shoot me. So it's uh, it's okay for me to kill him. And these and these people are, are are being acquitted for for this ridiculous line of reasoning. Yeah. If if there is one gun involved, both people don't have to have a gun. There just has to be one gun involved. You can walk around with a gun, shoot whom you like, and just say uh, they were trying to take your gun. I, I think more often than not, it'll work. Uh, is there anything you want to uh, to plug? So I, I I run a small network of podcasts called Ox and uh, started here with Springfield, Missouri stuff. Just me and Adam and a few other friends, my wife involved. Now it's uh, now it's gone full international, and we have a a, uh, a headquarters in Sydney, Australia. We we got our first international podcast, and by headquarters, I I, I do mean Tom's apartment. <laughs> Check out his uh, Tom's show lupine transmissions uh the other transmissions as we like to call it the aforementioned collector nerd podcast i do with adam called shelf life is on aux also my music podcast about discographies that i do with my band called discographology it's also on there podcast my wife started about young adult novels called are you there pod and if you go to patreon.com slash aux audio you can support us and get cool content for all those podcasts and hopefully this podcast we'll see Scramble Transmissions is written and hosted by Adam Timish with additional production support from Blake Walker and Ox Audio. Very special thanks to Blake for watching and discussing this episode, as well as his own thoughts. And of course, thank you for listening. If you like Scramble Transmissions and this episode, please take a moment to rate and review it so it can be shared with others. As always, until next time, watch something weird. (laughs) 